0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey friends, welcome to the Tennyson Bagels podcast. Joining me today is my good friend, Owen Lewis. Uh, we are here to recap Rome, um, talk about Roland Garros, uh, talk about our Favorite, favorites to do well there, dark horses, uh, and much more, and everything else going on in the tennis world. So, how are you doing today, Owen?
1: I'm doing well. Rome was a lot of fun, so it should be fun to get into it.
0: Yeah, should should be great fun. Um, Andre can't make it today; he's uh, he's been busy uh, with work. But so it'll just be the two of us, and he'll be joining us on the next one. But uh, I guess we can we can start with the WTA side, Owen, on the um, for Rome. Uh, Miga Shvientek just continues to continues to dominate the tour, quite frankly. Um, yeah. She's really separating herself uh, by a huge, huge margin now, and she's won the last five tournaments, 28 consecutive matches in a row, and dropped just 21 games on uh, en route to win the Rome title. And uh, once again, just ruthlessly destroying her opponents, but also finding gears when she most needs to, and uh, you know, coming through even without playing some of her best tennis. That was particularly true against Azarenka and Andrescu as well. Uh, where mm-hmm. she had close four sets and she wasn't serving her best, but yet just found a way and got through the, um, got through with her with her superior return games and just incredible shot making and resilience, and then just rolled through the second set. So, you know what? What do you kind of make of Chianti and where she's at right now? Oh, I mean, couldn't be better.
1: I I wrote something on her a couple of days ago where, um, and at this point, her winning streak was twenty seven matches because it was before the final. And um, I calculated in this winning streak, she's losing an average of 5.4 games a match. So depending on how you break that down, that's like a 6-2, 6-3 win or a 7-5, 6-0 win or something like that. That's so dominant. Like, she's not getting pushed by anyone. Um, And I think a good example is that match with Azarenko. Like, everyone was saying how intense it was and how this first set was really, really tight. And I think Sviantek almost went down a double break. Is that right? Or she did go yeah. down a double break. She um, went down
0: three love, so...
1: Right. Um, but I was looking at the stats, and um, Azarenka only held serve once the entire match because Sviantek yeah. was constantly breaking her. Um, and so if that's now the standard for is she being pushed, I would say, like, she's in a pretty great position. <laughs> um, I I mean, Roland Garros is different. Like, majors are different. And some people are saying, like, you know, maybe she'll lose to someone and at the Australian Open, she did lose, but that was such a long time ago. She's been so dominant for such a long time at this point, so I'm like, I can't imagine someone taking her out at this point because the like the last time she felt fallible seems like it was in a different universe at this point. That's how long this winning streak has been going on.
0: yeah, well said, and like the the phrase I think that comes to my mind is like in the zone, yeah, and where in the zone you're thinking so much more clearly under pressure, and you're just because you, you know you just, you feel invincible. Like you just, you can't lose, right? And it mm-hmm. just feels like she's just, she's got, she's got so much confidence behind her that she, like, how do you stop her, you know? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. yeah. and um, I mean,
1: in the final against Jabor, who played really well for a lot of it, um, you yeah. could see Sviantek was trying to do that thing where she just destroys her opponents in the second set and bagels them, and we saw that with Andrescu, and Jabor actually made a fantastic push from Four zero down. She got one break back, and then she went up love forty at two four. Had four break points in total in a really epic game, and Sviantek just kind of raised her level as if out of nowhere. Like both on offense and defense, made some ridiculous gets and held serve. And the thing was, like, it was amazing, but it wasn't surprising because she's done so well for such a long time now that it's almost expected. Um, and I, I think that puts a lot of pressure on her, which is difficult. But as a fan, it's incredible to watch because she's doing these otherworldly things as if they're normal, which no one else on tour is doing right now.
0: Yeah. And of course, Jabor is a player who beat her twice last year, once on grass and once, yeah. uh, once at Wimbledon and then once in Cincinnati on the hard courts. So for her to, you know, like you said, this, the standard is, it's just getting lower and lower for pushing Shiontek, right? Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, for love, from four love to two for the 40. And you're just like, I mean, Jabor played amazing. You're right. Like for those three games. And Shiontek just has this other gear, I think on the forehand now, which I don't think she had last year in terms of like just ruthless aggression and just taking control of points. She has this, she has this ability where she can just, I mean, she hits the ball harder than anyone and cleaner than anyone and she, off of both wings. And the she's, uh, you know, I, I don't want to like just uh, run out of superlatives and just, you know, put so much hype, but like, you know, the way she's, almost transcending the way players move on the court. Like it's just, you know, yeah. the way she's sliding and sliding in the corners and just getting around the ball with such great footwork. It's just like, how is, she, how, how is she chasing down a lot of these shots and she's still in such great balance and position like more than half the time. It's just otherworldly. The way,
1: the way she slides into the back end is ridiculous. <laughs> like some of those slides, I swear, have to be like 10 meters long. Um, It's insane and in i think in the fourth break point in that four two game she or one of the breakpoints, she had a couple epic gets where she was totally on the run and two or three times got the ball back within a few feet of the baseline um and reset the point and like to do that on a pressured point multiple times it's it's not an accident at this point it's the opposite of an accident um yeah. it feels like she's unlocked a level of play and kind of a level of consistency and balance in her game um that no one can match. And so, from that standpoint, like it's not a surprise at all that no one can beat her. Like, no one can get close because they can't do everything at the level she's doing them at.
0: Yeah. I mean, the amount of time she just finds the pattern that she wants is yeah. just like she plays the numbers game so well. Like, she knows, okay, I can have a really good kick surf, mm-hmm. second surf to my opponent's back and I can just get the forehand that I want. Yeah. And then yeah. just take control of the rally. And then um, if I, if I, if I can not get forehands, no problem. My backhand is superior to yours as well. And so I can just, you know, just change directions efficiently. Like, it's just... And then the way she's... um, Like, just the, the self-belief that she has, you know, on the court and the way she's finishing off these matches. And then, you know, you just see her, like, run and get her watch and celebrate. And it's just, like, she's been doing this routine, like, over and over and over. And it's just... It, it must be, like, so, so much muscle memory. And it's just... You can't... Like, it's going to take something significantly for someone to beat her. It's either going to take, like, just... And Ostapenko or Danielle Collins' like performance, where she just gets blown off the court and just doesn't have, just I guess wakes up on the wrong side of the bed and just doesn't quite have the, um, like just doesn't quite have it have it in her legs or just doesn't quite feel the ball so well that day, and she can't come back from left three down like she could against Azarenka when she has yeah. more time.
1: Yeah, I, I kind of lean towards it's going to need it's going to require her going off the boil entirely for someone to beat her uh-huh. because we look back to those Collins and um, Ostapenko matches and they did play really well. But I think the fact of the matter is that Fiontek was not playing nearly as well then as she is now. Um, you yeah. know, Like, I think if you look at how she played against Collins to how she played against Shabor in the Rome final, it's almost an unrecognizable difference. Like she's improved so quickly in such a short time and it's been like a sustained Im- improvement. Like she's been, playing this well basically since the start of her winning streak um and so like it's easy to say yeah someone could redline and take her out but the fact is like players have had 28 chances to do that now and it hasn't happened like she's too good for all of them and so I lean towards like she's really gonna have to be off just for her opponents to have a chance
0: yeah for sure and I mean we saw her win Rome last year and kind of cruised through the rolling girls draw and she beat Kostiuk I think in a in the fourth round and then she lost a she she lost to soccer in, like four and four yeah and uh, that was in the quarters, um and I don't remember that match so well but mm-hmm. like um but it, but it, uh, is it correct that she was struggling a little bit with like a leg injury or some kind of injury was was bothering her?
1: I think fatigue had something to do with it because she was playing doubles as well with uh, Bethany Maddox and right. they, um, and that was going on at the same time and she had played a lot of tennis that year and I think she said um. It kind of caught up to her in the quarterfinal, if I'm remembering right. It, mm-hmm. it definitely didn't seem like she went down with her best stuff um, by any means, um, which I think is kind of consistent with what we're seeing now. Like, I can't imagine a scenario where she would go down with her best stuff because her best stuff is way better than anyone else's at the moment.
0: For sure, yeah. And of course, that's not to say Sakari didn't put up an absolutely brilliant performance. because oh, no, she, she, was she, was a, she was a point away from the final as well. Um, but uh, in terms of the other players who did well this week, um, obviously the most impressive for me was, was Jabour backing up her Madrid title and getting to the final. Yeah. And especially the way she won her semifinal and her quarterfinal quarterfinal against uh, um, Maria Sakari, um, who, who obviously uh, is quite a, quite a good top five player now and has really established herself and consistently gets to semis and finals and, well, it was only one one title but you know extremely consistent and she was it, it looked like jabour was out of this one and she was completely out of gas and mm-hmm. sakari served for the match at 6-1-5-2 double break and 30 love, 30 love. <laughs>
1: um, so i i think bef- we'll get to sakari but i think that's the thing that impresses me the most about jabour is that that madrid title was tough physically and like you were saying i mean everyone said she was out of gas in the middle of the sakari match and yeah like chokes, but. It like somehow Jabor had the reserves to get through that match, play a long three setter in the next round, and um, and she didn't roll over against Fiontek in the final. Um, like I'm I'm amazed at how she had the fitness to do that because I think a lot of players win a tournament and then they'll pull out of the next one or they'll lose early or they'll um, like not play to protect uh, their fitness, uh, which is what Carlos Alcaraz is doing. Um, so yeah, I mean, the fact that she had all this tennis in her is amazing and I I do think like right now she is the second favorite for Roland Garros um like her her form has been awesome
0: yeah What what I like about her is that she can she has many many different gears she can go into and if she's just not feeling it in one set you know um she's like okay it's fine you know I can I can yeah. let that set go and just kind of preserve energy and just kind of I mean not really tank but just kind of you know just get your head right for the for the for the next set and if you happen to come back in the set great if not then i'll just let it go and yeah. she she's done that many many times and i think it's i think it's really kind of um it, it's really kind of put a dent in the way her opponents think as well because it's kind of like okay uh this you have this fast difference between level all of a sudden right. between yeah. the beginning of the third and the way uh the way she kind of let me win that second set and then so now and then she, she, she sort of starts really strong and then she's able to keep it going. And she has these, she has so many different ways she can, she can beat you Jabor, right? She mm-hmm. can just beat you with her power off the ground with just unleashing and unloading and on her backhands and forehands. She can come up with the most, most stunning drop shots, great disguise. Obviously she has a great slice. She can serve really well as well in the corners. It's almost like an Ash party type game, mm-hmm. but you know, a little bit different in the sense like she has a better topspin backhand than Barty has. Yeah. And the way she constructs points, is not quite as clear sometimes as Barty, but, but she, you, you get the feeling now that she's really poised and hungry to, to make a push into the top five. And she really wants to win a major and do all of these things for, um for Arab tennis and African tennis. And it's just, uh, it's, it's really quite good to see.
1: Yeah. I mean, she can hurt you from anywhere on the court at any moment. Um like she's got almost like a very freewheeling game like when she's on it it looks completely natural um it doesn't look like she's trying at all and it just completely bamboozles her opponents and i think that point you made about i think a good term for it is like strategic tanking almost like when Mm -hmm. um like she completely recognizes that you don't have to play every point really hard like some points are not that important some sets are not that important like as long as you win It doesn't matter. Um, And she does such a great job of that. Like right before this, actually, I was watching um, the Djokovic-Murray semifinal from the 2012 Australian Open. And um, it was interesting because towards the end of the second set and like halfway into the third, all the commentators are talking about is how tired Djokovic looks. And I'm like, but the thing is like the match is close. Like he was still sticking right with Murray. And so, and I feel like that's almost something she does. Like she can, um, like even when she's not, ahead or when she's not winning points constantly she's always dangerous just because she can take it up a notch at any moment um and she knows when to snap back into things um when the points get big
0: for sure yeah i I like the term strategic tanking that's a good phrase
1: (laughs) I, i think i think players should do it more generally i mean djokovic does it but like i feel like it's almost a taboo like not to play every point like it's your last but in the grand scheme of things it's not a good plan because if you don't want to play match point the same way you play a point at like 40 love in the first game of the match. Like you want to be playing match point harder. Um, and so I think budgeting your energy so that you can optimize that is completely smart. Um, but I don't think players do it that much.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And if you're, if you're really confident and you you sort of have so much experience to like really rely on and be like, okay, you know, I can, I can, I don't have to try it so hard on this point. I can, I can, you know, maximize my energy reserves and just um and, and you know, just let let some points go. I think I think Federer does it, I think Djokovic yeah. has done it quite a bit in his career. Um it's not something in Nadal's DNA, that's for sure. But right. It's and, and uh, like it's and what he easier. does is
1: what he does is great, but I don't think that should create an expectation that like mm-hmm. everyone, like if your opponent is serving at 40 love, well, like you should chase down that draw shot. Like, why? It makes no sense. Like even if you get there. Um, And you win the point, you sure. burned energy in a game that you're still not gonna win um so yeah i mean and and as a fan, like it's not fun to watch players um like not giving their best on every point, but it's totally smart um and I don't even think Jabor necessarily does it as much as several other players, but I think she really knows how to employ that tactic uh when it's smart for her, which is awesome.
0: yeah, for sure. she definitely employed it against Kazakina in the semifinals yep. six four one six. Um, seven five, and that third set really could have gone could have gone either, either way, but with the confidence she had, she just managed to pull through in the tight moments. Mm-hmm. But I guess some of the other players who did well. I mean, it's nice to see um two players really uh, come to mind, and that's Andrescu winning five matches over the course of Madrid and Rome. Mm-hmm. she got three really good wins here. Obviously, one was a uh, you know retirement against uh, against Raducanu, who wasn't at her best since Madrid physically, and then you have um, who else did she she beat in this tournament? Um, she beat uh, she beat someone after that, and then she beat Petra Martic. Uh,
1: Andrescu, you? Mean? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So she beat Martic for that. Um, yeah, then walk over against Raducanu,
0: and then um... yeah, Paziros Diaz. Yeah, okay. I didn't. I actually didn't watch this match, but it seems like it was it was a it was a pretty close two setter. Mm-hmm. And then she beat uh, and and then she had the good win over Martic. So right.
1: I mean, I, I think the first set against Sriantech is the most impressive part of all of it. Like, that's yeah. the most anyone's pushed Sviantek in an individual set in a long time. It was a great set. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, Andreescu broke her three times. Um, and, you know, the scoreline <laughs> towards the end is, is not great. According to Google scores, um, Andreescu won less than half of points on her serve uh, in general, first and second. Um, and that's a problem. But... I think the fa- the fact that she still has this level, even if just for one set, it's it's more than most people on the WUT, I can say. Even a lot of players ranked ahead of her.
0: Yeah, just won nine out of the thirty five points uh, played in the second set, and it looks like the tiebreak was pretty one sided. But yeah. you know, I I I don't think that's too much of a concern right now because she's no, not she's lacking lot. so much match play
2: mm-hmm. and
0: so much time off uh, off the tour. So it's going to take her a while to sort of um, get into top gear, especially when she's playing these top 10 opponents right away. Yeah. And also a lot of success against
1: Spiontech has also been doing this to so many players. And I mean, I watched that yeah. second set. It wasn't like Andrescu imploded, like she still made balls. Um, she didn't mm-hmm. beat herself. It was just that Spiontek went into that destruction mode Um and yeah. completely stifled her in every way possible. Um, I mean, it was brutal, but it wasn't like Andreescu did a lot wrong. And against 99% of opponents, that's not going to be a problem.
0: Yeah, well said. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, Jessica Pigula has been quite consistent. She's number five in the race. She's, mm-hmm. you know, finalist in Madrid and semifinalist in Miami. You know, went to the quarters at the Australian Open and then yep. backed up her run here and uh, did – Won a couple of matches and then lost to Sabalenka. Good to see Sabalenka also have a bit of a resurgence.
1: Yeah, and um, I think Amanda Anasimova has been yeah. doing really well. I mean, the loss to Sabalenka in the quarters from a setup is tough, but I mean, what she did at the Australian Open and beating defending champion Naomi Osaka um, from match point down is astonishing. I think her easy power goes beyond that of anyone else on tour, except maybe Ostapenko. Yeah. Um, so I think, like, she's one of the very few who, like, if on the day she peaked and made every single ball, could put Spiontek in some trouble. Um, I, like, I, I think her game is so bruising and damaging when it's on. Just the weight of shot she has on every ball is incredible. So I hope she has a good run at Roland Garros, because her matches
0: are really fun. Yeah, for sure. Her ball striking on both the backhand and forehand is just... is just really, really pure. And it's, it's like, extremely... Simple technically strong Um, and then you know she can hit well in the corners too I don't think she moves as well as some of the other best players in the world but Mm -hmm. when she's in position I mean my god she can beat she can beat anyone on her day I I remember uh, watching her play for the first time in 2018 at Indian Wells and this is when Petra Kovitova was more consistent and quite Mm -hmm. uh, you know quite a dangerous force and still a top five player and she just she beat Petra Kovitova at her own game it was just yeah and she was 16 years old at the time that is that is wild, yeah. And especially the way she was just knocking the cover off of her cross backhand, yeah. And just yeah, just I mean Patrick I, on the back foot. I, I remember
1: some of the points from the end of that match against Osaka, and there were a few where they were like trading forehands, and one or two times Osaka hit a great forehand, but it would hang up for like a fraction of a second, and it's like Enesimova kind of swings almost gently, and the ball. Explodes through the air like it was shot from a cannon, and it's like as soon as Osaka hit that shot, where the quality was like one percent lower than it needed to be, she knew that the ball was going to come flying past her. Um, yeah, that's extremely dangerous. So yeah, again, I hope. Um, I, I think she can definitely mix it up at Roland Garros.
0: For sure, yeah, she did well. She got to the quarters. Um, was a set up on Sabalenka. Sabalenka. She had a four-match win streak against. She was four zero in their mm-hmm. head-to-head. So.
1: Yeah, I mean uh, she beat Collins six two six two, um, which is great. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I guess um, you know, Andrescu and uh Andrescu and Anisimova are two really good dark horses. I don't think anyone wants to wants to see them in their in their section.
1: Definitely not. Um I, I wanted to talk to you a bit about uh Barbara Krejcikova, who's you know the defending champion at Roland Garros in both singles and doubles, but has been injured for a while now. Um her I mean, she hasn't officially pulled out of Roland Garros, but I think a lot of people are kind of doubtful that she will play. Um what are your thoughts on that? Like how do you think it would affect the tournament if she's not present and if she does play? Um do you think she'd be able to recover form fast enough to become a factor?
0: Yeah, I I certainly have my doubts. Um I I certainly if I were to guess, I don't I don't think she would play, but then again the draw is about to come out and it's uh, it's quite possible maybe she just sees this as her her you know return to the return to the tour and just kind of has very very low expectations obviously with the pressure of being the defending champion and you know with how strong and uh, deep the women's tour is and she's just you know not had any matches pretty much yeah. since since the middle east or since february and um been sidelined with an elbow injury pulled out of indian wells pulled out of miami um pulled out of all the clay court events and you know, that's that's not something you want to see, obviously, because Krijikova has been a really consistent presence um, in the top five since she won Roland Garros last year, and she kept building on that form, you know. Um, lost to Barty at Wimbledon, lost to Sabalenka in the quarters at the U.S. Open. Um, went deep and almost pretty much... Uh, went deep in the mix and uh, and won doubles at the Olympics. Like, she has all these match wins and all these... Um, all these uh, great victories and just so much confidence. And then she just... Uh, I think even quarters at the Australian Open, so you know, very, very consistent. And you can't say that about a lot of players right now in the WJ with how deep it is. Mm-hmm. So I, my expectations for her are extremely low, and I think, uh, I think I don't expect her to go in the second week if she did play. Yeah, um,
1: yeah, um, yeah. I, I think I agree with you. Um, I I hope she's back at least by the end of the year um, because, like you said, she was having her as a consistent presence at at every tournament was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. So yeah.
0: Yeah, um, so it should it should be interesting to see how how the draw unfolds, and you know we'll we'll see when the draw comes out later this week. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, why don't we go ahead and talk about the ATP side? And
1: uh... yeah, um, so we we have a list here, but before we get to the order, I was hoping first we could talk about the return of the clay goat Daniel Medvedev. He played his first match uh, of the clay season today lost uh, Richard Gasquet. Um, but you know, like Daniel Medvedev, God of clay, he's back. What did you think?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Daniel Medvedev did wonders for our uh, podcast last year. Um, <laughs> After... I-, I
1: missed that this year. I'll tell you.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, that was one of our most listened to episodes about Medvedev and his gardening and his, uh, his antics in Rome. And obviously, uh, you know, going through a bit of the complaining phase during his, uh, before the French Open and obviously he hadn't played in a while, he'd gotten COVID, he's not obviously clay is absolutely not his favorite surface, he's made that clear a million times <laughs> but but I mean, uh, I watched a little bit of his match today against Gasquet and I thought he was quite rusty um, you know, wasn't feeling the ball quite as well Gasquet was was playing uh, some of the best tennis I've seen him play in years mm-hmm. uh, so it was a really bad combination for Medvedev across the, the other side of the net and he was you know, just chiding himself quite a bit. Wasn't getting to the, ball, wasn't getting to balls like he usually does. And Gasquet was challenging his patience and it just wasn't quite there. Um, his, his trademark shot tolerance and consistency from the baseline, which works well, even on the clay. Yeah. <laughs> and then obviously he was, there, he was down a set in a break and he was up two one in the first set and then he lost seven games in a row. And then he came Boy. back. Uh, it was not looking good there for a while. I was like, he's going to lose two and two. Like this is, you know, he better come up with something really good here. And I did kind of get the feeling that if, if he won that tie break, um, I think that would have really swung the match and he would have had uh, he would have had all the momentum on his side. And Gasquet was already starting to get a bit tired. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, I mean, then he the, you know, unfortunately he finished the match on a double fold. Obviously, he did well to get the break back. The second set was a bit more competitive. But uh, you know, it would have been he it would have been nice for him to get a couple more matches here. But but I think, you know, even, even regardless, um, he'll want to defend his quarterfinal and at Roland Garros, obviously, and he'll, you know, maybe he can use the best of five set experience that he has now to his advantage. Right. Um, and, you know, maybe just grind through the first couple of rounds and then see what happens.
1: Well, no matter what, if he's down match point, he needs to hit a better underhand serve than he did last year. <sighs> um, but but yeah, I, I don't have much to add. I caught the end of the second set. I actually thought he looks pretty decent. Um, and yeah. I, I think best of five will help him. Like, I, I feel like, I mean, he's the number two seed, so he's going to get a nice draw. A moment for surface-specific rankings. I think we could avoid <laughs> situations like this. Um, Nadal, Djokovic, Alcaraz, and Tsitsipas could all be on the same half of the draw. Like, you yeah. know, think about how ridiculous that is. Um, but yeah, I think, um, and this also kind of makes me wish that Svantec could play best of five. Um, because, you know, she has all these wins, and she's the overwhelming favorite. But there's still the possibility of, like, if for as much as an hour um, she's off or someone else is on, it could all go away like that. And you know Medvedev, who comparatively sucks on clay, um, has that extra hour to figure things out. Um, So again, like best of five. Um, But yeah, I think um, for some reason, I think he'll win a few rounds, which I did not think was going to happen last year.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's kind of strange in a way. We haven't seen him play a full clay court season. Like we've just been robbed of that for years now because... I mean last year he didn't, he didn't play in the beginning and then the year before that we didn't really have a clay season yeah. well, 20 and then
1: last year didn't he play more matches at Roland Garros than he did in all the other clay court tournaments combined?
0: Yeah, I, I think he went into Roland Garros playing on just three matches and he won one. right yeah he, then... he
1: makes he makes projections tough. <laughs> um, but yeah we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, you know talking about favorites, um, Djokovic has just won Rome for the sixth time. I think most people are saying he's the Roland Garros favorite. And, and I wanted to talk about that a little bit because I think I agree, but for some reason when like people were saying that, it just felt a little bit off to me, and I wanted to think about why that was. Um, I think part of it is that it seems like Nadal is going to play, but he's not physically fit, so it seems like he'll be less of a factor. But I also think Alcaraz might still be in better form. Like I feel like what Alcaraz did in... Madrid might have been more impressive than what Djokovic did in Rome even though Djokovic did find that god mode in patches um it wasn't like he was in god mode the entire time and I don't know I wonder if I wonder if Alcaraz could beat him if they play and I know Djokovic has the best of five experience in the history of doing really well at Roland Garros but that's a match I want to see like I, I don't think it's easy to pick uh in this latest
0: yeah I agree I mean Alcaraz just blew everyone's mind away what he did in Madrid Obviously, beating Nadal and Djokovic, and Zvera back to back to back, um, and and you know we hadn't seen, you, you know we, so far you know because he lost early in Monte Carlo and he won Barcelona, we were kind of waiting to see what the real pecking order was, and then, you know, Djokovic was, I would say this is this is the best tennis he's played like all year and you oh, know yeah. by far and some of you know maybe one of his best runs to the Rome title since 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, I 2011 was awesome. was the most impressive by far, but. Um, but even here, I guess the way he beat uh, Felix, who who I thought played yeah. the, you know one, the best match I've ever seen him play on clay, and that was the best match Djokovic had played up until that point, all mm-hmm. things considered. And then, and then the straight set win over Casper Rud, and then the way he um, came back from a breakdown and bagged Tsitsipas. Obviously, we'll get to the final later. But um, it was uh, it was a uh, you know he couldn't have asked for a better run and a better way to put himself in the. At least in the top two, if not the best, Mm -hmm. um, going into Roland Garros, it's kind of an interesting discussion. Like I, I, same thing as you. Like I kind of put him at number one, um, just by a slim margin. But that's purely all just because of all the years of experience and the, you know, the RG record and his consistency there and best of five. And there's still that little bit of unknown. Obviously, with Madrid playing differently than Rome, and you know, Alcaraz, you know, got a really good version of Djokovic, I'd say. in Madrid, he was playing really well, but mm. I think he's even in better shape now. And obviously, best of five oh, yeah. is going to be it's going to be a whole other animal. So we'll see. Um, we'll see if they do happen to play in the quarters or semis or whatever that is. It may be in the final or
1: yeah, I yeah. I'm kinda I think most of the
0: betting is... favorites have either either have them tied or they have Djokovic slight favorite. Right, and but,
1: but it is pretty close. I'm, it is, I'm curious yeah. to see what that Madrid match ends up telling us because I think. I mean, most people said yeah, Djokovic was pretty good, but he wasn't at his best. And I felt like the thing that people weren't really saying was that like Alcaraz wasn't really either. Like in the first set, I thought he was terrible for most of it, to be completely honest. Like on the return, he he lost 21 points in a row. Um, and it wasn't like Djokovic was completely treeing. Like, I know he's got a tricky serve to read, but this was on clay. Alcaraz is a great returner, and he was not even winning a point on the return of serve. And he still managed to get to a tie break, and he only lost that tie break 7-5. So I I totally agree that Djokovic can play better, but I also thought that Alcarez could play better. Um, And so I feel like that was definitely a preview of what we might get if they play in best of five. But I think on both sides, it's going to require a monumental effort to win that match. Um, Mm -hmm. And I mean, Djokovic having to chase down those drop shots for five sets in four hours, hours—like, I don't think that's going to be easy at
0: all. Yeah. And then one other thing about Djokovic is, you know, he did get tight a couple of times. Obviously he got tight uh, twice against Felix. He was serving for the set. Right. Of serving for the both the first set and the second set. And he lost his serve there. You know, I don't think I don't think it's anything crazy, just a couple of points. You know, got tight, which happens. He got tight in the uh towards the end of the match against Sitsipas. Sitsipas mm. made three backhand errors in in the tie break, which uh yeah quite frankly is a little unacceptable on his part. But
1: <laughs> right. well, I mean Federer made four in one of those twenty nineteen tie breaks. So he's not alone.
0: Yeah. I I mean Djokovic can do that to you in, in tie breaks, but it, yeah. you know, he was he was he was quite tight. He wasn't hitting his second serve. He was hitting his second serve quite slow. He was kind of pushing his backhand, kind of, you know, waiting for the right ball. And, you know, he does that so well in in, in the tie breaks. He just goes in this lockdown, cannot miss mode. And that's why he won, I think he was what, fifteen and two in tie breaks in twenty nineteen. And he's yeah. You know, he's, he, he, he's really quite found that formula. Yeah, win. I mean,
1: Djokovic understands a thing about tie breaks that a lot of players do not get, which is that the most important thing is not making errors. Like, you can you can blast winners. Like, that's great. But you're, more often you're going to lose a tie break because you made errors than because you did a good job of, like, keeping the ball between the lines, even if you weren't that aggressive. Like, I think... I can probably count on the fingers of one hand the times I remember like someone lost a tie break because they weren't aggressive enough. Do you know what I mean? Because a lot of the time one player is gonna go for it. And if you're not accurate, like that screws you. A lot of the time you're <laughs> gonna make errors even when you're not going for it, as we kind of saw with the TC Boss, just a lot of rally errors. Um, yeah. And so, really, the number one thing you wanna do in a tie break is don't be the person to do that. Like you can play safe, that's fine. Like if if the other player blasts winners like too good but I like you don't want to give them the free points and Djokovic never does that
0: yeah for sure so yeah I mean all all those things and all those things considering and then also so like what are some of the areas that he's improved in throughout this clay court season if you look at Monte Carlo and Madrid obviously the forehand is the number one thing I think he's like he's really up the aggression on the forehand wing yeah and he's Taking control of rallies, taking them or control of them earlier. He's using his his forehand as a finishing shot right now is just one of the best right now. And it's like yeah, it's it I mean, miles I mean, better than what it was in Monte Carlo and
1: right. Um, I right. mean, people have said Djokovic has an underrated forehand for years, and I think underrated is probably not a strong enough word to describe it. Like when when it's at its best, it is absolutely one of the best forehands in the world. Like he as we saw, we, he took on Tsitsipas's forehand and he yeah. he came out on top in that. Like, that's not it's not something that happens with many forehands. Um, I mean, Alcaraz has done that, but I mean, who else has really? Um, yeah. like, maybe Nadal has a slightly better forehand, but they don't really trade forehands when they play because he's a lefty. Um, yeah, I mean, the things Djokovic does with that shot are incredible. It, defensively, it's incredible. He can hit it anywhere he wants. Sometimes he has weird patches where it kind of, like floats over the net or he has that drunk forehand like once every couple of years or whatever um and sometimes you can attack it but when it's at its best it's almost almost perfect it's a great shot um and yeah he really brought that to Rome did a bunch of amazing things with it more in the first set than the second set against Tsitsipas I thought but yeah if he brings that forehand to Roland Garros uh, everyone's in trouble
0: yeah sure and then the way he can sort of counterattack with it, and he's so precise with it, um, he can rush you off of it. He can, yeah. He can uh, buy his time with it and then wait for the right ball and attack. It's yeah, it, it, it. really improved a lot, and obviously, the serve improved. I think the forehand improved, but the main thing that I'm still, I know some people, I know a lot of people are saying, you know, his fitness has improved, mm-hmm. and I think I think that was the case in the Alcaraz match for sure. Yeah. Because obviously he looked, uh, he looked gas when he lost six left to Rublev in the Belgrade final. And he looked gas when he lost six, one to davidovich Fokina and Monte Carlo. But I think, uh, I think he did all the hard work in Belgrade to, to get to the final, you yeah. know, coming yeah. back from a set down. I think that was really key for his fitness. And then obviously he won those two matches very comfortably in Madrid before the Alcaraz match. And then he, here he didn't drop a set, but I'm curious to see what happens if someone really pushes him, you know, deep into a fourth or a fifth, how yeah. does his fitness really hold up then?
1: Yeah, and, and that's what I want to see. Like, I want to see him play Alcaraz and for it to go five sets and for him to have to run a lot because that's not something he's had to do. Yeah, I, mean, I The U.S. Open, I like, he was pushed physically a lot. And Roland Garros last year with those back-to-back epics against Nadal and Foss, he had to do that. But besides that, um, it's been a while since he kind of got pushed to the brink physically. Um, and so, yeah, I, I agree with you. That's something that where maybe players could make a little bit of ground against him I'm I, I guess like what I'm excited to see is if um th- these top four favorites Djokovic, Alcaraz, Nadal, Foss, have to play more than one of like those other favorites I mean because and I was talking to you about this before we knew that Nadal had a foot thing when he was still kind of everyone's favorite and I was like He is still everyone's favorite, but kind of imagine what happens if he has to play Djokovic in the quarters and then he has to play Alcaraz right after that. Like, do we really see that going his way? Like, that's brutal. Um, And I feel like that's kind of the case for all of them if the people they play are fit. Um, I mean, whoever wins Roland Garros is going to be gassed by the end. It's going to take a massive effort.
0: And obviously Nadal goes into Roland Garros this year. The most unideal way he'd he'd have asked for, right? I mean... Yeah. Coming yeah. back in Madrid, obviously he had that tussle with Gofan. His foot wasn't great uh after that. And then obviously, you know, the Alcaraz match was kind of weird, but you still thought, okay, you know, that's a positive. He got to the quarters of Madrid. Mm-hmm. And then here, you know, he uh, it already wasn't a great sign when he played Isner and he, he beat him three and one, and then already he was asking to to practice more because I'm guessing he didn't quite have the I mean, obviously Isner doesn't give you a whole lot of rhythm and that's right. not, not, a not a lot style. of
1: faceline rallies, I'm guessing. Um yeah, but yeah, um, I mean and, and the thing was that that is sad about this is like in the first set against shapovalov he was he was amazing he was great
0: he was was destroyed him um
1: and i mean and at the end it was just like he lost 14 points in a row like he he couldn't move um and you know it hurts to watch because if he can't move his game completely falls apart his he's got a lot of power but he's never been someone who can just stand in the same place and blast winners all over like he no he needs to move um and it sucks to watch because it's like it's almost as if like he was playing on one leg um he just can't do any of the things he wants um and yeah and so it doesn't seem that likely but I I just really hope that doesn't hit him in the middle of a match at Roland Garros because to and you know like it's in his nature he's not gonna quit on a match like that when it's going in that direction really or like if he does it kills him to do it um Like i hope that if the foot does flare up like it's between matches or before the tournament starts or after the tournament ends so that he can if he does lose it's like when he's physically fit and i realize that's an unlikely thing to hope for but regardless
2: imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, and it's we it, it clearly, clearly this week is really important. This week leading up to RG, right. seeing if he, can, if he can practice kind of the right way, and you know those first two or three rounds, four rounds are going to be more important than ever. And in 2020 and 2021, he got, you know, I'd say pretty friendly matches in the first three or four rounds, so he was able to work his way into it. I mean, it's a little different from when he lost to Schwartzman in Rome, obviously, because yeah. I mean back then he was coming in 2020 is when he had come off that layoff he didn't play the u.s open he didn't play for seven months and then he got a couple of matches in and then didn't look great against Schwartzman. but the thing is that time it was just purely about his his confidence and his uh and just match rustiness right whereas this time it's more about it's more actually dependent on the foot and that foot is so unpredictable at this point in his career
1: yeah and it, i think the thing hard. that that maybe some people don't understand is that if that foot isn't pain-free or really close to it uh it's it's gonna hinder him like a lot of people are saying um oh he needs to get through those first few rounds economically but I don't know if that's gonna help him because at some point he's gonna have another match like the one against Djokovic last year like there's no way he wins the title this year without dropping a set he's gonna have to play Alcaraz or he's gonna have to play Djokovic or he's gonna have to play Tsitsipas and it's gonna be a war um and so like if the foot isn't ready for a war um like he's in trouble he's like with matches like that you need to be physically fit and if he's not then he's not going to win them um yeah. so yeah I, I don't know it doesn't look good
0: it doesn't look great the positive news is that he's dealt with this his whole career so I yeah. guess you know he he kind of knows what has to be done but then also yeah like it's it's incredibly unpredictable and it's not something that can just be you know obviously you think okay injury you rest you know it'll, it'll get better but this is not <laughs> this is not one of those injuries yeah, for sure. because also when he when he injured his rib and he was out for those five, six weeks, I think the inactivity is actually what made his foot uh, flare, flare back up again. I think he mentioned that during the pandemic in 2020 as well, mm-hmm. that that's when he was when he wasn't playing. <laughs> that's when right. it was actually flaring up. But it's it's something he can sort of play through. And it's just about pain management. he has, he has to manage it. It's kind of it's almost like he his luck ran out a little bit because obviously he had that great start to the year. He won 20 yes. matches in a row. He won the Australian Open. And this time it's happening on clay, where it normally you know it's, right. it's the other way around. So, and,
1: and I mean, the only other year he won the Australian Open, um, he kind of ran into trouble on clay as well. Although it wasn't from yeah. his foot, it was just he played too much and completely ran himself into the ground. Um, I guess it is that deal with the devil thing in Australia, right? Like he he wins uh, Australia and bad things happen to him. No, but in all seriousness, it's I, it's tough for him. Um, my guess is that he'll he'll play he'll be physically compromised. He will drag himself to the fourth round or the quarterfinals anyway, because he's better than 90% of the field, even on one leg. And then he'll run into someone tougher and lose to them because he won't be ready for that kind of match.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that seems likely. And obviously, um, Shapovalov, you know, did well to win two matches and then obviously take take advantage of the situation and he played a great uh, third set, didn't blink this time and didn't... uh, didn't try to go for any kind of ambitious shots, just you know, played the percentages yes. a lot better. First time <laughs> Something we criticize him. Time. Sometimes yeah. some so, sometimes we criticize him a lot for that. But also he did also change his tactics a little bit in the second set. I noticed he started serving a bit more a lot in the 2016 from wider positions and yeah. you know, finding the finding the angle. And sometimes he would use it to good effect. Hit a good serve at Wally, his shot tolerance was a little bit, a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh Took advantage and then lost it in two tight sets to Kasparov in the next round. But yeah, and no
1: shame in that. No, no um, shame in that. Yeah. So is it okay if I rant a little bit about something? Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So something that really <laughs> frustrates me is when you get a match like this, and the first thing the commentators say is, like, I'll let this take nothing away from what Denis Shafavalov has achieved today. Um, yeah. Because, you know, an injury puts a cloud over a match and they want to act as if the injury was not the defining factor in the match but I hate it when people pretend like the injury wasn't a defining factor in the match because like, yeah, Chapo yeah. did a lot of good things in that match. I thought, you know, he, he won the second set in a really impressive way. Cause that was close and he pulled it out, but like in the third set, he literally won 14 points in a row because Nadal yeah. couldn't move. Like that's not the stuff he's doing that that's because his opponent couldn't move his feet. Um, And I wish that, People would just accept that that is a thing that happens in tennis matches and not pretend that it's something that doesn't exist um, so that you can kind of react to a tennis match the way you want to react to a tennis match. Um, and this goes for every time someone's injured. Um, I'm you know I'm trying to think of other examples, but I guess it's just frustrating because like it's not an impossibility. It happens all the time when one player being injured is the reason a match panned out the way it did. Um, yep. I wish that people could admit that more often because it, it sucks to talk about. I get it, but it's a thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't be accurate if you didn't, if you didn't mention it and you put it in context. I mean, definitely three, like, three of the last four times Nadal was lost. It's been mainly due to injury. You know, yeah. Against Fritz in the Indian Wells final, it was the same kind of thing. Fritz played really well. Mm-hmm. You know, he absolutely deserved to win. I think a lot of players would have folded in that situation in the second set. So he deserves a lot of yeah. credit for that. But Nadal absolutely was was injured. And then same against same when he lost to Lloyd Harris in Washington, DC last year. Oh yeah. Same in the fourth set of Roland Garros. Although, you know, I tend to give a lot more credit to Djokovic there because obviously right. that, that Nadal was different. Nadal was 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 in great shape for three sets. Yeah. But yeah. um yeah, like most of the times he's he's lost. Um I mean, it's you know, unfortunately, and, and that's just the reality and fans just refuse to refuse to accept that. Yeah, like- I mean, um, and I, I do
1: think even the Indian Wells match with Fritz was different because that was one that got closer the longer it yeah. went. And like that second set was a battle. Um, And, you know, Nadal <laughs> wasn't at his best, but it, that was an actual match. Um, And this yeah. one, like at the end, it's like Nadal is not winning any points. Like you have to look at that and recognize like this is a 10 time champion who lost 14 points in a row. Like, what do you think is going on here? Do you think there's a conspiracy where he's tanking so that people think he only wins, uh, like he he only loses when he's injured? Or do you think there's actually something wrong with the guy who has won this tournament 10 times and would probably be winning individual points if he were physically fit? Um, and certain people insist on, with, like, perpetuating this narrative that he plays up his injuries. I'm just like, this is someone who is one of the goats of the game. Like, do you really think he is using this to get an edge over, like, other players in the field? Like, please use your brain here. Um. Yeah. And I wish these people weren't loud enough that we had to talk about this, but they are, so.
0: Yep. And then, of course, the whole notion, notion of faking an injury, you know, when you're up uh, a set and you're... Yeah, yeah. I mean, we yeah, can go on
1: about it and, all day. But people freaking did that to Djokovic uh, at the Australian Open um in 2021. They're like, yeah. oh, he he pulled the rug out from under fritz and i'm like yeah so what do you think like the, your eight time champion at this tournament tanked two sets so he could win in five instead of winning in straight sets like freaking use your head like they don't have to do this like yeah they're better than everyone can you not understand that um and like yeah they're gonna lose sometimes um but it's it drives me crazy
0: yeah well and then uh... Uh, on
1: that happy note yeah well um <laughs> And so, um, you know, Dominic team and San Vavrenka, um recently played more tennis matches, um, and I thought Vavrinka was pretty encouraging. He had a nice win over Riley Opelka from a set and a breakdown. Um, there's a cool screenshot that you can take where um, Opelka was up 4-3 deuce serving in the second set, and he had like an overhand volley right on top of the net. Um, and he didn't quite do enough with it, and Wawrinka hit him with a two-shot pass, and then won the match from there. And I think very few players will win the match against Opelka when they're down to set in a break and he has like an overhead on top of the net. Um so kudos to Stan for that. The match against Djokovic maybe wasn't as close as we'd have liked, but I think it was encouraging.
0: Yeah. It was good to see him win two matches against top 50 players and then and then go up against Djokovic and Djokovic playing really well obviously made that a lot tougher. And yeah. it was gonna be kind of entirely predictable that the match wasn't going to be wasn't going to be as close, but we really wanted to see a we really yeah. wanted to see that match again because obviously that rivalry is uh, is legendary, especially in the majors. It's one of the
1: weirdest rivalries of all time. Like it's because you have these five set battles that they've had, but in best of three, it has never been remotely competitive. Um, it's like. Uh, a tennis god possesses Stan's body whenever they go up against each other in a major um and whenever they play in best of 3 that god goes and possesses someone else um mm-hmm. it's it's been strange ever since like 2013 um but it was still nice to see yeah. them play again
0: yeah it was nice to see and um yeah hopefully he'll get to play Roland Garros and maybe best of 5 will will help him He pulled out of Geneva this week and he didn't play in between uh, Monte Carlo and Rome as well so i'm guessing you know Obviously, fatigue was a factor there. Yeah. Um, by the time he got to the Djokovic match, and uh, certainly uh, he's uh, 37 now, so it's uh, mm-hmm. it's you know time is very limited. But yeah. uh, it's
1: it's a bit of a shame as well because that guy was he was a, a machine like fitness wise uh, in his prime. I mean, as recently as 2019, do you remember that amazing amazing match he had against TT Poss in the fourth round of Roland Garros? Um, yeah. It was like five hours and seven minutes, I think. And then two days later he comes back and plays Federer in a really close, long, tight four setter. Um, that he was up a break in the third set in. Um, I mean, a lot of players will lose that three, three, and three. And Vavrinka made it a battle. Um, and he can't really do that anymore, um, which is a shame because that was really cool. Um, but yeah, so so nice to see stand back and you know right back into talking about something depressing. Um Dominic Team, it has been a rough comeback.
0: It's been extremely, extremely rough. Um, you know, some we've we've seen him uh we've seen flashes of his brilliance, we've seen yeah. uh you know, moments of magic, we've seen him save match points with winners. We've seen him hit the backhand on the line. We've seen him we've seen him move better. We've seen him try different things, but it just hasn't come together for him. Just hasn't come together. And it's it's yeah. he's uh Still missing a ton on the forehand, still right. doubting himself a lot on that shot. He's still, um, you know, not converting his breakpoint chances. Um, his opponents are peaking and playing some of the best tennis because they know that uh, he's there for the taking,
1: yeah. Um, and, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that team's level is really not there. Like when your opponent doesn't show up, it makes it easier to play your best tennis. Yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. the forehand's is worrying. Um, because that was team's thing. He would unload on every single forehand, and you couldn't handle it. It was way too fast, way too heavy. Um, and he could hit it past you even in the biggest moments. And now it's like the speed and the weight on that shot is just not even close to what it used to be. Um, and it's not something that is improving match to match. Um, it's not something that's really gone away. So is I mean, I, I have no idea. I'm just guessing here. But like, is that ever something that you think is gonna come back?
0: I think it will come back. It's just gonna take a lot longer than we're expecting, and it's gonna require him to to play down and level, you know, maybe go back to the challengers. Maybe you know, I I don't really know. At this point, I think he's gonna be playing the French Open, but um, you know, so so we'll see if he can get if he can get a match in. Like it's just He's in a tough spot right now because even in challengers, he's going to have to face some of the best players on clay. We're going to make him work right. extremely hard. I mean, you know, some of the last few players that he's played aren't exactly top caliber players, but they're, you know, they're capable of playing really well on a given day and he's going to, he's going to have that. It's, it's kind of a chicken and egg situation. Like you need more matches, but you got to win more matches to get the matches. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's, it's like, yeah, he's just got to, like he's, he's not one of, I think he's on a nine match losing streak. And then if you combine Something the top like 10 um, and over a year, it's a lot of time away from the game. And that wrist is really going to mess things up, right? I mean, I think yeah. he's already made technical changes to his forehand and it just doesn't look the same anymore.
1: Yeah. Maybe he'll get Medvedev in the first round of Roland Garros, and that'll, like, ignite <laughs> something in him, and he'll start peaking again, uh, like, at the 2020 US Open. Um, but Can you yeah. imagine,
0: winner of that will play Vavrinka in the second round, or something oh crazy. Like, it yeah. it'll I, be the trio of...
1: It's, there's going to be a weird-ass part of the draw, like that, like, Murray and Vavrinka <laughs> playing in the first round in 2020 last year. Um, I forget which, but that was yeah, weird.
0: Yeah, 2020. It's, but, it's... but, yeah,
1: in all seriousness, like, team, I hope... I mean his attitude has been fantastic. Like I don't know if you've seen his social media posts, but they're like relentlessly optimistic. It's it's yeah. kind of amazing. Like he's he knows what he wants and he wants to be back. Um and I respect the heck out of that. So I you know, I wish him better luck with this because it's been tough.
0: Yeah, it's been tough. I I, I wish him I wish him best of luck as well. Um but, but yeah, I have seen his I have seen his social media posts and he does do um Threads and he, he does he gives his analysis after every match it's great yeah yeah it's good stuff um,
1: yeah and uh, anything else you want to add um before we wrap um,
0: up yeah i wanted to touch a little bit on the Rome final um great. obviously because um you know I, I you know Tsitsipas has been putting together consistent weeks now on the clay i mean you know winning Monte Carlo quarterfinals of Barcelona lose to Acres in three Mm-hmm. Uh, gets to the Madrid semis. Okay, loses to Zverev. Not a bad loss. He's beaten him twice already Rick. this play season. And the tournament's that let's be honest, better more. And then you know in the in the in Rome, I thought it was impressive that he got to the final because he could have lost in the first round against Dimitrov, and he made that match so complicated. Yeah, geez, I uh, I completely you know, was forgot up, about
1: that.
0: <laughs> was up a set and a break, and then had to save two match points. And on one of the match points, he hit his second serve. And it was, a, it was a kick second serve, and he, he dared to serve and volley on it, and Dimitrov missed the return. And then on the other right. one, he hit, he hit this incredible inside-out forehand winner um, and a clutch first serve. So he somehow got, got through that match and then kept dropping sets. So he dropped his first set to Hachnov found a way came back yeah. there, um, and then played a really tight first set against Sinner uh, where the Italian crowd really got into it, and that was a close first set. And then he pulled away in the second. Right. And then he came back from a set down against Varev, and he got his revenge from Madrid. Mm-hmm. And I thought he played a very smart third set in that match, where he just limited the unforced errors. He yeah. knew that Zverev was going to play more aggressive than he, he needed. He needed to be, and he just relied on his defense, and he relied on his. Um, he, he just relied on his superior uh, clay court tennis, to be honest. And then he yeah, and then yeah. he came up against Djokovic, and <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, okay, the first set is a bagel, and uh, obviously we have to say Djokovic was playing incredible in the first set. I mean, his oh, forehand yeah. return was dialed in. His, he was reading Sitsipas's serve. Sitsi Plus wasn't making enough first serves and he he looked definitely looked a bit jaded. Obviously, he'd had a, you know, a tougher route to the final in terms of sets dropped. And physically mm-hmm. I don't think he was at his best. But then, you know, came the game where I think it changed what made that set six love is he was serving at love two and he was 40-15 up on his serve.
1: Yeah, yeah. And they they he talked about this on football. three and Djokovic hit like two insane winners fast. And when he didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. Yeah.
0: One was a counter forehand cross court winner. And right. you know, since he had the first ball forehand right where he wanted it and Djokovic read it like a book. Yeah. And then the other was a really good uh, forehand approach that would have won the point against most players. And then Djokovic hits that incredible cross court backhand passing shot winner. Right. And then, and then um, I don't know if they touched on this on three, but he had another game point after that. And this is where Djokovic's for first forehand just does so much damage again. And yeah, he is, you know, Sitsipas is so comfortable hitting backhands from the cross court, from the ad side, because he yeah, doesn't have yeah. to do that much. It doesn't really challenge his defense. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't expose his weakness because he has plenty of time like he would on clay. So he can, but what Djokovic does is he either has two options. Now he can either hit his backhand down the line and go hard at the Sitsipas forehand and then get the shot that he wants and make Sitsipas defend on his backhand, or he can hit an inside in forehand. And he chose to hit an inside in forehand and just take control of the rally. And then he hit another winner. And then I think pretty much after that, was just totally lost belief. And that set was over fast.
1: Yeah. And and you can't blame him because when Djokovic is in that mode, there's nothing anyone in the world yeah. can do. Um, I I haven't known what to make of Tsitsipas' clay season because I think the results have been wow. fantastic. At the same time, I don't feel like he's ever been at his best. And I think yeah. on the one hand... I would agree with that. It speaks so well of him that he's able to have these fantastic results without being at his best. Like in the Monte Carlo final, for instance... I thought he gave Davidovich Fokina way more chances than I expected him to. And he still wasn't yeah. straight. Like, that's awesome. Um, yep. And then, but besides that, I mean, I think even in Rome, like, he, he made the final. as a personal best for him. But I never really saw a match where I was like, man, Tsitsipas is on the, like, he's, mm. he's playing really well. Um, and so I, I'm kind of confused about what to expect from him going into Roland Garros. Like, I, I don't see him losing to anyone below him. I think he's way too good on clay for that at this point. Yeah. Um, I see him going deep for sure, But I'm also not really expecting him to beat Alcaraz or Djokovic or Nadal if he's fit. Yeah. Um, it's it's weird. I feel like he's he's almost in a... Purgatory is the wrong word because it's a much more positive place than that. But I feel like he's almost in limbo between the very best players in the world in that second tier of players. Like, I think he's made that jump for a little bit and he's been in the second tier for a little bit and now he's kind of in between. Um, so yeah. I'm I'm excited to see what he does at Roland Garros because, but I also think there's a lot of pressure because with him being a set away from the title last year, if he doesn't win this year, by definition, it's a step backwards. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a really tough yeah. position to be in with you know, Alcaraz and two of the goats in the same draw as you. Um, so I, wh- whatever happens, I hope he I hope he can play his best because I think he'll have fewer reg- regrets that way.
0: Yeah, I like what you said about him not being in his best, but still finding a way to come through. And then, yeah, I kind of agree about his French Open. I have him as the fourth favorite right now because... Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, I don't feel good about his chances when he comes up against either of those three. I mean, he's now lost the last five or last six, actually, against Djokovic and last five on clay. And, okay, they've been close, you know. Mm-hmm. Three of those have been close. Uh, this one wasn't wasn't as close. But And then, you know, he's, yeah. And then against Vell, he's down in the head. It's like 2-7. And, you know, he had that match point in Barcelona. But yeah, who really knows? I mean, he's, I think he's, uh, he's kind of, I'd still put him in tier one, but he's the fourth favorite for me. Like, behind, yeah. behind Rafa yeah, and, at this and, point, and, even though he's had a really consistent play season.
1: In a way, I like his chances against Djokovic better than I do against Alcaraz. I think if he plays Djokovic again, it's going to be mm-hmm. closer, because I think he'll play better. And if Djokovic reproduces that god mode forehand, especially over five sets, I'm going to be pretty shocked. Um, I, yeah. I think Alcaraz is more of a matchup issue. Like, he might never have beaten Djokovic on play, but last year you have that Rome quarterfinal which by all rights, he should have won. He had all kinds of chances. And then you have that French Open final, which, you know, last three sets weren't that close. But again, he had chances. He was up two sets. Um, and against Alcaraz, I don't know if he's ever really been in position to win um, hmm. for a little while now. That, that US Open match, maybe. Um, but it feels like those matches are getting less close rather than closer. And I feel like this last one against Djokovic was almost an anomaly Um, because I think Djokovic played uncommonly well like I would be surprised if that happens again so
0: eventually I knew his level was going to come down especially at the start of the second and that's when Sitsipa was broken I gotta give him some credit because especially in the second set he started serving way better his first serve percentage went way up and and direction wise as well
1: avoiding the forehand
0: yeah avoiding the forehand and obviously that kick serve uh you know, was very effective against Djokovic as Alcaraz showed in, in Madrid. Really? the high Alkares, the
1: tactical master at 19.
0: But, uh, but I mean, Tsitsipas recognized that quick and then he, he got off to a 4-1 lead and then he had a break yeah. point for 5-1 and, right, and right. Djokovic comes up with an incredible forehand winner and gets out of that game. And then he holds for 5-2 and then, you know, he was two points away from breaking and starting the third set serving first. But then then comes the game at 5-3. And this is where you know it's a little bit of both because I feel like Djokovic raised his level again. He came up with a forehand return winner on one of the points. And then he just and then Tsitsipas started going for Sipas went for this backhand drop shot and he did so well to get back into neutral. And it's almost like he picked the wrong shot twice. He he went for a backhand down the line off the first shot ball, missed it, went for um, um Mr. Missed, missed a serve plus one in that game and then missed a backhand drop shot where he really didn't didn't need to go for that shot at all. And then Djokovic obviously was locked in and not making any errors. And then he was sort of back on serve. And then you get to the tie break. And it was a kind of a weird tie break because Djokovic goes up five two. And then he gets back to five. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just like, neither player is playing well at all. And yeah. you know, Djokovic is tight as a drum. He's serving like 75 mile per hour second serves. Right. <laughs> and you know, Tsitsipas is you know, fighting like he like he always does, but still not really having, still not, uh still missing too much and making too many errors, especially off the back end. He made three errors in that tiebreak. Djokovic yeah. only made one error in the entire tiebreak. And and I mean, just, that's the
1: difference, two points. Yeah, um, and that yeah, was the difference. I, so I, I don't think Tsitsipas played well in that final. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think I was really impressed with what he did in the second set, but I think early on in the second set, he was serving at like 80%, and that That is amazing, but it's never going to be sustainable. So the the fact that the set ended up being close didn't surprise me. Um, And yeah, I mean, in in the tie break, it was just, there was one point where Djokovic absolutely floated in a second serve and hit an average return. And then later he like shanked a ball in the rally. And after Djokovic was kind of laughing to himself and like, I thought it was because of the shank, but other people said it was because of like him getting away with that second serve. And I was like, yeah, could have been either one. It was just not a pretty point. Um, and in a way, this makes me optimistic, because Pus can play so much better than that, and he still almost won that second set. So, like, yeah, I, I think he remains super dangerous. Um, no. But I, I don't know if he's played his best tennis in a while. And, like, I, I don't know if that's cause for concern necessarily, but, yeah, I don't know. It's, he, he's in a bit of a strange place at the moment.
0: Yeah. We'll we'll see because he was uh, he was a set away from the title last year and obviously you know he can play so much better than he showed in Rome and uh, so it just it's going to depend a lot on the draw. We'll have to see. I mean, thank goodness we're not going to see another Zverev CTFOS. I'm so tired of that match. Oh God, it's... it's it's never good quality, and it's always yeah, it's it's. I'm tired of it. We've seen it three times now. Right. And... I, I
1: mean, Alcaraz Tsitsipas is infinitely more entertaining, and those matches are all going the same way. <laughs> like it's it's a better rivalry, even though it's less of a rivalry. Um. Yeah. 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 I'm the, the Roland Garros straw is going to tell us a lot on the ATP side. There's yeah, there are a lot of permutations mutations that could mean a lot of different things. Um, sure. So yeah, I mean yeah, I
0: mean are, are those are five favorites in order for me it's Djokovic, Alcaraz, Nadal, Tsitsipas, and then very distant fifth is Zverev.
1: But yeah, yeah, I, I feel like uh Sinner or Rude. I mean Rude less so Rude has disappointed me this play season. Um, but yeah, someone could displace Zverev in fifth. Um uh, Schwartzman even if he starts playing well. Um yeah, but Schwartzman
0: last two Roland Garros has been very impressive. Yeah,
1: me. he's his post prime um or like maybe this is his prime now the stuff he's done recently is amazing like that that went over Nadal in Rome uh in 2020 that was special yeah. um he's taking the ball so early but yeah I'm I'm excited um I'll tell you what I want to see is a rematch between um Foss and Medvedev um I feel like uh I feel like we are owed a sequel of that just because that was so much fun um and CC Poss oh, yeah. will destroy him again if it happens, but like we'll get another moment like that under hand surf. Yeah.
0: So Medvedev has to pretty much make the semis for that to happen.
1: Well, so Medvedev's two and CC Poss is four. Four, right. Okay, yeah, so not can't many happen many before be. the semis. Yeah, Shame. <laughs> if it were two and five, it could be in the quarters. Um I I feel yeah. like tennis maybe needs to do that one, eight, two, seven thing, because like the fact uh, that you can get two and nine or two and eight in the quarterfinals, and you can get one and five. Um, yeah. I don't like that.
0: It's... It, it's tough. always really random. Like, it's it could be four and five, it could be three and six, it could be three and yeah. seven. If there's too many permutations.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think back. Um, do you remember the 2020 Australian Open? Um, in the quarters, yeah. Nadal was one, and he had to play team who was fifth. And, you know, team yeah. is red hot and takes him out. And Djokovic was two, and he... I don't even remember who he had in the quarters. Um I think it was around each. Yeah, I mean that's that's not even comparable. Like yeah. And and you know, obviously it luck probably evens out for everyone in the end because draws are random. They're not fixed uh, to everyone listening to this. Um, but it's yeah. I feel like a little more reward for the top seeds would be nice.
0: Yeah, that would have that would be you know I definitely want to say balance I don't want to see the those four favorites in the same half so
1: oh god what a nightmare that would be I mean I think last year we're lucky it worked out with it did, the way it did with Djokovic and Nadal playing that great semifinal, and Djokovic somehow still having guests for the final but like you know imagine if that had worked out differently or like if Federer were in a place where like he could have been competitive enough to be a factor and then the people on that half of the draw really would have killed each other um and oh man yeah I, I just don't want it to be like I, I was scared that would happen in madrid but zverev was going to beat alcaraz after alcaraz cleared out djokovic and nadal and by comparison zverev kind of got to waltz to the final it's like it, yeah you can't control who you play but you never want it to work out like that yeah
0: i agree i mean just real quickly before we before we wrap this up like yeah. who, who are some of the other dark horses for you um for Lon garo's like I, I, I guess by by that I mean players who are like unseated.
1: Sure. I don't think there are many. I think the top players are a lot better than everyone else, even the ones who are seated. Um mm-hmm. people who are unseated. I'm I'm having trouble of thinking of anyone, to be honest. Is mm-hmm. is there anyone on your mind?
0: Not really overwhelming threats, but like, you know, maybe like Lorenzo Musetti could get to the fourth round or something. Yeah. Yeah. Like, he maybe, could, maybe him he could do something. Maybe Fonini if he's not, you know if he's like actually focused which is a very big if
1: i i liked the way he played against the team that that was an intense match it felt like a match between top 10 top 20 players for patches yeah. um i, I, guess, I don't you know, know if he'll keep his head for longer than five minutes though also maybe some of the ground.
0: others maybe some of the others who are good in 250s like a bias or a Rone, i'm excited
1: a... to see how Baez does um i think i like his upside on clay um like even in terms of you know top 10 players who aren't favorites is is there anyone who you think could pull a huge upset because i mean i think felix is inconsistent on clay rude yeah. i would generally say yes but he's had an awful play season um i think sinner is still not ready to take that next step like i think he's like two steps behind where tt is now um yeah
0: the key thing for sinner is like just he hasn't he hasn't had a big win yet you know like yeah. his like the, the best player he's beaten by ranking is is andre Rublev, you know a match on slowly that you'd oh, expect man. him to win yeah. so you know he's not and i think he's like 0-12 against top five players yeah which I is mean, a really his, damning stat actually
1: it, for sure his biggest thing is like he doesn't have right now at least he doesn't have the level to win a major like he doesn't have that yeah. that gear that the other people have
0: um yeah, yeah so i'm struggling to think of anyone like really i mean Shapovalov, like, eh, you no know, not, not, not high on him at all, He's you know? too inconsistent. Um, Harkac um, is too reliant on his serve. Dimitrov, you yeah. know, is, is inconsistent. To,
1: like, to, to be honest, I like Dimitrov better than most of the names we've said. And, and I think Harkac, yeah. the lack of a forehand is going to kill him on clay as well. Like, his matches are going to be slogs, even when he wins them. Um, what about, uh, what about Rublev? Like, what, what do you think he can do?
0: um i think at best he can get to a quarters again which is actually it's it's been a long time you know i mean the last it time has. he made the quarters was australian open 2021 mm-hmm. and i mean last year he he lost to stroop i think in the first round so he can he can actually stroop uh, isn't
1: playing so maybe that's uh, a good omen for him yeah
0: yeah so i think i think he can definitely get to the to the quarters if he um you know if he doesn't have like a really dangerous unseeded player yeah but I, uh yeah he still has those matchup issues against a lot of the top players so
1: against all of them really but yeah. I I don't know I I still kind of think what he did to Djokovic in the Belgrade final like I I know Djokovic gassed out but that second set was insane even though Djokovic won it Rublev pushed him to do a bunch of things that I don't know I didn't know Rublev could push people to do so I, I hope that Rublev gets another match like that where he gets to play Djokovic or Tsitsipas or Nadal or Alcaraz because he won't win that match but he'll get another chance to kind of, like, improve. Um And I think he needs that.
0: Yeah, I mean, he did well in Belgrade, and he did well in Madrid. He could have he could have won that match against Tsitsipas. That was quite 50-50.
1: That's right. Yeah, he had break um, points in the last game, didn't he? Yeah. That, Madrid, that was a good match, uh, yeah.
0: Big quarters. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we'll see. He hasn't been that good. He lost to Krajinovic in Rome, I think, in the first round, and then he lost to Sinner and Monte Carlo. So, you know, it's... Yeah, like he, he's probably it feels
1: been... it feels expected for Rublev on on yeah. balance that kind of play season. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah, and then let's see if Felix can finally win a match at Roland Garros because he's done he's done well in the, in this play season since Monte Carlo has gotten to three quarters. So yeah.
1: Yeah. Felix has had a bizarre. I mean, year. Like he's, I mean, the things he did in Australia and right after Australia with that tournament win and making the final, and then this match against Djokovic, all yeah. of that's amazing. But everything else this year has been crap. Like he's he's either been outstanding yeah. or he's been terrible. Um, so I I hope that he's closer to the former Roland Garros because him losing in the first round again would bum me out. He's way too good to still be doing that.
0: Yeah. Hopefully he'll uh he'll have a high enough base level that he can he can finally win a match. <laughs>
1: yeah. Okay. So so predictions uh a- ATP and WTA um I think. Uh
0: for the title without having the yeah, draw? Yeah, oh, for the title. Okay. Mm. <laughs> well, for the WT, I'm gonna be boring and go Diva
1: Yeah. I mean that that that's not even boring at this point. That's just deserved status for the stuff she's been doing.
0: Yeah. So she'll tie of Venus Williams for the longest match win streak since 2000 at 35.
1: 35. 30, Six 30 King, in a row. Five. That that would be nuts. I mean, she she deserves it. Um yeah, I'd love to see that.
0: Yeah, and then on the men's, uh, it's, it depends so much on the draw, but it's uh it's gonna be between Djokovic and Alcaraz and Nadal for me. So yeah. it's uh, I mean, Nadal with his uh, foot not being a problem, but right. man, I don't even want to predict. I think I'm just gonna, I think I'm, if you put me on the spot, I'm just gonna go with Djokovic. Okay. Yeah. Like if you, yeah, I'll be yeah, with that.
1: So I'm I'm going with Shviontek as well, just because I can't imagine a scenario where she loses. Um second favorite Jabor after that, I have absolutely no idea. Um on, on the men's side, I, I do want to go different. So I I'm gonna say Alvarez because okay. I can't I can't get past how weird it is in my head Djokovic winning <laughs> Roland Garros two years in a row. Um I just I like that universe seems too strange to me. Um so, yeah, I'll, I'll say Alcaraz wins. The, the kid destroys everyone uh, and outlasts Djokovic in a four-and-a-half-hour match. shot winner on match point.
0: I can already see it happening. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think we're set for really good tournaments because I think, um,
0: yeah.
1: I mean, if Swiatek wins, that's unquestionably a success, right? She's been yeah. having outstanding form. This would be, like, a more-than-deserved kind of reward for everything she's done and I think um I think she's been so dominant that like it still allows for plenty of other like side storylines you know it's like while Iga beat whoever 6060 like you had this storyline and that storyline um and plenty of it will be about her as well um and on the men's side we'll be able to track Nadal's fitness um see how Titipas is playing see how Carlos and Djokovic are playing um and yeah I think I think the problem with the men's side is, besides those top four favorites,
0: I can't really see anyone else going to be
1: really uninteresting. Like there is, (laughs) there is not an Anisimova type dark horse, like in the entire draw. I mean, there there are threats to make third or fourth rounds. There are not threats to make semifinals and finals.
0: Yeah. And and we go back to best of five.
1: And we go back to again. Yeah. So much of it is that like. I mean, can you imagine if Sviantak were getting to play best of five on the WTA side? Like, she would go from being an overwhelming favorite to, like, if you don't pick her as the favorite, there is something seriously wrong with you. Like, that would, yeah. I don't Russ, know. You
0: know how many finals I wish were best of five on the WTA, or just second yeah, weeks in I, general, or at least yeah. just whole tournaments in general? I mean, the, yeah. The best just. way
1: to do this, I think, is best of three on both sides first week, best of five for yeah. both sides second week, like fourth rounds to finals. And then, like, that way it's like risk of upset at the beginning stuff goes quickly and then you have all the epics yeah. and classics in the second week yeah. but you know tennis is tennis they won't tennis figure things tennis. out they'll do something stupid uh and we'll probably lose best of five forever so
0: we'll still we'll still enjoy it no matter what
1: <laughs> yeah that's true although um,
0: yeah yeah Carlos, uh, this is his sixth main draw of a major, and Rafa, when he won the 2005 French Open, was indeed his sixth main draw. So I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, I, really quickly, I, I do think it's kind of interesting, because I feel like I, I don't know if Carlos is playing significantly worse than Nadal did in 2005, <laughs> but I feel like he's less of a favorite to win the tournament because the competition is tougher than it was in 2005. Like, I think In 2005, yeah, you had Federer, who was playing by far the best tennis in the world, but he was the only one. Um, Now you have Djokovic and you have Nadal and um, and you have Tsitsipas. And, you know, maybe none of those guys are playing as well right now as Federer did in 2005, but there are more of them. So I think that makes it tougher.
2: Yeah,
0: for sure. All right, well, you can follow us all at at Tennis and Beagles. You can follow him at... uh... Tennis nation, and you can follow me at v 2 k You can uh, check out Popcorn Tennis, which is uh, a great blog.
1: Thanks for that. Um, yeah, I mean, if if you want to mention us on Twitter, I, I ticked off a lot of people yesterday by saying Djokovic had a better uh, career on clay than Bjorn Borg, so uh, I, I'm ready for it. Uh, giving me all your arguments.
0: Yep. And as always, there'll be plenty more, and uh, we'll we'll be here, and we'll uh, we'll cover it all. So. Yep. Thanks Stay tuned, and uh, yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll
2: see you later. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello,